Yeah, you know, if it's deal specific, even if it's not, you always want to start out with, you know, why? Why this deal? Uh, every deal has a story, right? Should. Uh, they almost always do. What's so unique about this one? Because there's opportunities out there. Uh, you can go on Google and just find investments and, and drown in them, right? And so how do you pick the right ones and, and why is this a good opportunity? And does it align with my interests and my goals, right? So income versus growth is a good way to start. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, our guest is Mark Curry from SMK Capital Management. And today, we're focusing really on mobile home parks and vetting mobile home park deals, vetting mobile home park operators, and really a lot around mobile home parks in particular. That is not the only thing that Mark invests in. He invests in a number of different asset classes, which he's going to tell you about here in the show. But I wanted to focus on mobile home parks in particular because they are very popular today, both with passive and active investors and passive investors in particular, you know, you need, you still need to know what to look out for in mobile home park deals. So that's why we're digging into it today with Mark. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I am a real estate investor and I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate, specifically in apartment buildings and self-storage properties. If you're interested in learning more and potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call with me. And once again, investwithtaylor.com. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind, guys. I appreciate that so much. I really mean it. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. I always say this, and it is always true every single time. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please do share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Once again, our guest today is Mark Curry. Don't forget to uh, you know subscribe to the podcast, no matter what podcast app you use, and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Without any further ado, here we go with Mark Curry from SMK Capital Management. Mark, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Taylor. Been a great conversation so far, and I think we're going to have a lot of great knowledge for our listeners today. For those out there who don't know about you and your background, can you tell us a bit about SMK, yourself, and what you do? Sure. Yeah. I'm um, a financial analyst by trade. I used to work in corporate America doing a lot of spreadsheets, analysis, you know, real fun stuff. And uh, while I love the numbers, it, it transitioned well into real estate investing. And so I started investing in real estate about 16, 17 years ago and uh, just evolved over the years Been doing it full time for 12 years. And essentially what we do is we find great opportunities with great people. We create partnerships, syndications, and we invest in multiple asset classes that we think have some of the best potential uh, for cash flow and growth. And we allow our investor group to uh, invest with us as well. So that's a short and quick one for you. I'm sure there's some questions there. <laughs> oh, there are so many questions there. And, and for the folks out there, uh, could you give us a rundown of the asset class types that you invest in just so we, you know, folks have kind of a picture of, of what you uh, do? Sure. I mean, we've invested probably within, you know, the real estate industry and in, in maybe over a dozen asset classes, Taylor, over the years. We've 
really fine-tuned it and targeted uh, what I'd call kind of our main three bread and butter today um, that, that we love to invest in. The first one is mobile home parks. Second one is uh, self-storage. And the third is uh, workforce apartments and growth markets. Great. And in the time frame that you've been a real estate investor, you know, from 16 years ago, and I think you said 12 years ago, uh, going full time, obviously the market has changed significantly. You witnessed, you know, the original run up and the Great Recession firsthand, and then the changes over the you know last market cycle. I'd love to dig into some of those changes because you've been there, you know, right along with them, with some asset classes gaining a lot of popularity and some getting less popular. So let's dive through it and talk about how that's that's changed. Yeah, it's, it's very applicable, Taylor. Great question. When we started out, we being my family and I and myself, of course, in our investor group, started out heavily focused in the earlier years, uh, call it around the Great Recession time, post-recession 2009-10, uh, really investing, focusing heavily on single family, small multifamily, distressed you know, boarded up stuff that you buy all cash from the bank, do a lot of heavy lifting, turn them around, sell them or, or refi out and hold for rental income. And evolved over the years, we started investing in more diversification into other asset classes that we felt had a very good likelihood of continuing to perform. I mean, if you could imagine back in 2010, the world was falling apart and there was only a few asset classes at the time that we found uh, a lot of conviction around their ability to you know, keep doing well and performing. And those were the ones that we continue to invest in today. And so we've evolved and we've grown to the asset classes I noted, but we kind of stopped investing in single family, small multifamily about three, four years ago now. There was just a lot of reasoning for that, but uh, a few of the reasons for us was uh, historically single family has been correlated to the overall market. And so during economic downturns, recessions, uh, they tend to follow the market. Whereas commercial real estate, uh, you know, general principle valuation is based on income. And so a little bit less volatile during downturns. So we really started preparing for a recession. Uh, we created a recession resistant fund in 2018 and closed it in 2019. We combined our three asset classes together. We invested in over 50 properties across 13 states and more than 12,000 units of housing, mobile homes, and storage. And so today, we still focus on what we think are the best asset classes for a risk-adjusted return. But I will share with you, of course, as we all know, that cap rates have been declining for 10, 11 years now. And mm -hmm. mobile home parks you know, used to have a going-in cap rate of 8 10%. And that was uh, somewhat normal. <laughs> and sure enough, that's that asset class has seen a significant cap rate compression over the years. Today, I mean, depending on market and quality of the park, you might see going in cap rates in the high two, low 3% range, that's even crazy. lower than apartments. And so, you know, th what that does for us is it just increases risk, right? Because now you're paying a lot more. Uh, and you just better know what you're doing when it comes to operating the asset extremely efficiently. And there better be a value add business plan. Otherwise, we're not interested in investing in it, right? We're not going <laughs> to buy it and sit on it and just hope that the market's going to keep going where it is. We really like to focus on manual appreciation, growing NOI by doing a certain specific set of things uh, and do that over and over. Nice. I, manual appreciation. I don't know if I've ever heard that term used. I, I always think of it as forced appreciation, but I would assume you mean the same thing. Correct. We're making decisions and taking action 
manually forced is synergetic there to grow value. I like that manually though. I might, I might, I might shift and start <laughs> saying manual appreciation. I don't know. We'll see. I, I always like driving a manual transmission car, although I haven't owned one for years. So we have seen uh, two asset classes in particular get a lot more popular, a lot more attention, self-storage and mobile home parks in particular. And we're talking about self-storage right now. And I think one of my big concerns in that area is the popularity has meant a lot more new entrants coming into the business who don't know that asset class and, and don't know the finer points of what it takes to run a mobile home park, what can go wrong. And especially with folks buying it at two and three caps. I mean, if they don't know what they're doing, they don't have that experience. That doesn't seem like the best move to me. Sure. Yeah. It's high risk, right? We're at uh, asset pricing today is at all time highs. Taylor, it's been going up for years. And so we've been saying that for years. How much more can it go? We don't know. Uh, But we do see that there's a lot of good investments out there that can provide great returns if they're positioned correctly, um, if they're bought correctly, and if they're managed correctly and operated correctly. And so, yeah, there's a lot of new entrants to those two asset classes. We tend to focus on operating partners that have uh, stellar track records, uh, are specialists in one thing, and they do it much better than us. And so, uh, usually they have an AUM of 500 million or more, and they've got a uh, a lot of competitive advantages that we uh, would want to partner with them on and take advantage of. And so that's kind of how we look at it. Some of the newer entrants into the spaces noted, you know, may do very well, but in my view, there's just a little bit higher risk with lack of experience. And so we try and uh, really, you know, look for operators that are seasoned to say the least and have a pedigree that you know, we'd want to stand side by side with them. I like that. I I think that's smart. And, you know, I just to back up a little bit, I really appreciate that you say recession resistant assets and not recession proof because that's ridiculous. Absolutely. Nothing is recession proof. Anything can happen. Right. And we need to always be aware of that. So when it comes to mobile home park investing, you're, you're focusing on experienced sponsors with, I think you said over $500 million in assets under management, but from a deal perspective as well, what are some, we'll say, uh, red flags or say maybe uh, green flags? You see something that, hey, that's a good sign or something that, hey, that's a bad sign that that you like or dislike. Yeah. I mean, it's different for each asset class, Taylor, what we look for and trying to avoid. And we could talk about that for a while. I think mm-hmm. maybe what I'll do is I'll share with you some thoughts on mobile home parks since we're Perfect. chatting about them. Yeah. So a few things that we look for is we try and find parks that are heavily owned or the homes are heavily owned by the residents, not by us, right? So we don't want to necessarily own the homes. We like our residents to own the homes. They're responsible for the maintenance, upkeep of the home and their their homeowners. And so their longevity and they just stay there at the park for a long time. And it reduces our operating expenses because we're not responsible for maintenance and repairs. They just paid a lot rent. And so that's uh, one portion of mobile home parks that we try and focus on. It's getting harder and harder to find deals, Taylor, where all the residents own the homes. They they tend to be those parks that are trading at very low cap rates because they have lower risk, right? And so um, we also look for mobile home parks where occupancy uh, may be lower than where we think we can take it, right? So there's an opportunity to improve occupancy. And that can come in a form of a few different ways, but we really try and find, you know, parks that have maybe uh, 10% of the lots are vacant, 
or more, not too much. If you get too heavy in value add, it might become uh, zero cash flow investment. And we try and have both cash flow and growth. And so we want to have a play, a, pl- a business plan up front, Taylor, where we can grow the value. And we have a very strong uh, belief in, in that it's going to be successful. And so if you've got a park that has you know, 10, 15% of lots vacant, and we can bring in new homes over the first few years, and there's a deficiency of affordable housing in the marketplace, you have a very good likelihood of growing net operating income in that uh, park. And so that's another area we look for. Um, We try and stay out of war zones where there's a lot of crime, um, and we tend to focus on parks that uh, are really providing an affordable housing solution, right? As we talked previously, we try and look at the gap between the cost of home ownership for a stick-built house and the cost of living in a mobile home park. And we want to have a nice, nice spread there, right? Usually about 30, 40%, sometimes higher 50%, uh, where you're going to have a potentially a waiting list for the mobile home park homes that you're going to bring in. And so uh, I'll pause, see what questions you have. But those are some of the things we look for in, in mobile homes that we try and uh, focus on and also avoid. I love that. I, I think that point about the cost, we were talking about this before we were recording, the cost of a single family home compared to the cost of living in a, a mobile home park. I mean, I, I hadn't even thought of that before. You pointed that out. I'm like, oh yeah, of course you want to look at that, right? That makes your mobile home comparatively more appealing. And and the housing affordability aspect is huge. And that's not a problem that frankly can be solved within any number of years if it exists. I mean, it's going to take a long time to bring any new housing stock on board, no matter where you are. Now, when it comes to filling in vacant pads in a mobile home park, um, when I had dug into mobile home parks and, and looked at putting some deals together myself there, one of the big problems that I ran into was zoning and lot design that was not really compatible with the way and the size that mobile homes are built today and that the the setbacks were you know too large and the the spot you could put a mobile home was just not really that that feasible for the mobile homes you'd be able to actually find now that's kind of into the weeds of due diligence but you know how much should you know sponsors be digging into those things as they you know are are looking at deals getting out of contract da 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 what are your thoughts about that? I mean, it's kind of a detailed question, but sure. you know that that's something you want to figure out on the front end, right? Yeah, you're going to want to know that Taylor are actually going to be able to bring mobile homes in, and then if there is a restriction, like you noted, maybe it's not a new home, right? Maybe you have to only be able to source older homes that are used, maybe 1960s, 70s, 80s vintage homes, uh, which you can find. They're just harder to find because they're you know, few and far between, and so. If you know that ahead of time and you have a strategy to get those homes and you know that that's all you're going to put in, I would just say that you know from an investor standpoint, you're going to want to look at that deal and not place as much uh, emphasis on the projected returns from the value add component of bringing those homes in because that's a higher risk value add proposition. And so if you like the deal, assuming that they don't bring any homes in and it still makes financial sense and hits your return metrics, then you might be fine, you know, in my view, just taking a conservative approach and saying, hey, look, they may not be able to actually do this. Let's still proceed because even if they don't do it, I still like this opportunity. Mm, okay. Okay. Now, you, uh, you, I think you said before you're in, you're invested in 13 states, if I remember right. Do I remember that number right? Uh, in, in that one fund, our recession resistant fund has assets across uh, 13 states. Yeah. But uh, as a company and personal investing, I mean, we've got, um, we, we haven't calculated Taylor, but probably more like 20, 25 states. 
Mm, okay, awesome. And one of the things that we've seen, this is probably, this is a fairly detailed question, but that's one of the things that's happened over the last you know, year or so is that insurance rates have really gone up in a lot of areas, particularly the Sun Belt's been hit pretty hard, but they're kind of going up across the board. But I, I haven't explored that topic for for mobile homes and mobile home parks. And there's there's that always that, you know, kind of, I guess, stereotype of a you know tornado going through a mobile home park and in the Midwest. And, you know, how are investors dealing with that from a, a mobile home park perspective? Has that, you know, insurance rates gone up comparatively? And, and what have you seen? Yeah, I mean, there's always that stigma and that fear of, you know, a hurricane coming in and blowing the park away, right? It's gone overnight. And, you know, I, I had that fear many years ago when I first started analyzing the asset class as an investment option. I will say that it's it, it doesn't happen that often, number one. Number two, the quality of the, I should say, the guidelines, the requirements uh, with bracing and belting of the home to the cinder block foundation that's under it, although it's mobile, they're not that easy to move, Taylor, right? And so some people think they're just sitting on the ground when they're not, and there's a, a little bit more security there. And so that helps, of course, uh, where today the new mobile homes that come in, they, they can withstand a lot of wind, a lot more than most people think. I don't know the exact numbers, but uh, the, re- the requirements, again, have gone up for safety and security. Now, with that, on the insurance side, yeah, it properly being properly insured is mandatory for all of our investments, not just mobile homes, because we've had fires at properties that have uh, had almost a total loss. And so that's happened at a duplex, for example. Tenants had to climb out the window and is scary stuff, right? And so you have to make sure that you're protected. Insurance costs have gone up. We've seen that lately. We just budget that into our pro formas. We expect that they're going to continue to go up. And that's kind of the nature of, of today's market. And so you're going to want to look at deals and see what's the projected increase on these kinds of expenses in year one to year two, et cetera, et cetera, going forward. Are they being conservative? Are they assuming that this is going to stay flat uh, and not go up? You know, really look at that line item on the pro forma and and determine um, how that assumption is being calculated. And now as far as how, you know, what type of protection and this and that, you know, for most of our asset classes, we look for loss of rents. So if there is a devastation, a fire, like I noted, the insurance company will cover the lost income from the residents or the customers that can't uh, or not going to continue to to pay for a space that they're not using. And while the insurance claim is going on, right, you can get that, uh, that cost recouped or that loss of income recouped. We also, you know, one thing we've done in the past is we've hired a insurance loss professional to come in and act on our behalf and sign over the power of attorney to them. And then they work with the insurance company for you and I'll see how to say this properly, but insurance companies don't always have your best interest in mind. I'll just leave it at that. And so hiring a third party uh, private claims adjuster it has been something we've done actually a couple of times. And they've in, in essence uh, fought with the insurance company to get a higher reimbursement cost for the damages done. And uh, that's one strategy that has been very successful too. Is that more often than not that that works out? Personally, I haven't gone that route myself, hired one, but that works frequently. It depends on devastation amount. How much loss are we talking about? If it's a smaller claim, maybe a smaller apartment building, it may not be worth it. But if you've got to the tune of hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars of damage, then I believe it's in in your best interest. Unless you, again, you might have somebody on your team or somebody that does this very well, that's going to come up with their own quote for 
uh, line item by line item for the cost to actually incur the damage and then show that that insurance company's quote is missing things. If you can actually be that sophisticated, because that's essentially what they do, then you know have at it. But uh, we find it to be very well aligned. And a lot of times, Taylor, not always, but some of these folks will uh, technically only get paid once the claim is paid out. And so it's really performance-based. If you can find that structure, it's a, it's a win-win. Okay, cool. So we've talked a bit about sponsors and, and, and looking at them and, or, you know, people that are actually you know, doing the deals, making sure they have experience and all of that. I'd like to kind of shift the magnifying glass, if you will. And, and we're not going to talk about any, you know, specific offerings or what have you, but if it, someone out there is considering investing with someone like you, who's, you know, going out and finding these sponsors, what would you say are some good questions to ask, you know, to ask Mark if they get on a call with Mark or, or someone like Mark? Yeah. You know, if it's deal specific, even if it's not, you always want to start out with, you know, why, why this deal? Uh, every deal has a story, right? Should. Uh, they almost always do. What's so unique about this one? Because there's opportunities out there. Uh, you go on Google and just find investments and, and drown in them, right? And so how do you pick the right ones? And, and why is this a good opportunity? And does it align with my interests and my goals, right? So income versus growth is a good way to start. How much of the total return is coming from income? How much of the total return is coming from growth? Look at that percentage, right? And see if you're an income-focused investor, you may not want to be in a deal where the total return, you know, 75% of it's coming from the sale. And you might want to look for something a little bit more balanced, maybe 50-50 income and growth. That also helps reduce risk. And so make sure that the deal is aligned with what you're trying to do and achieve. And then as far as people go, you know, you got to have some established sense of trust in being a passive investor. And if you don't, then don't invest, right? And so how do you create that? It takes time. You got to ask a lot of questions. You have to really feel that you're partnering with folks that have your best interest in mind, number one. Uh, you have to feel that they're going to be very, uh, have a very high likelihood of, of meeting or beating the projected returns, right? Not, you want to kind of decipher between deals that, you know, as we say, all the stars have to align just to get to the projected return versus very more conservative underwriting or have some assumptions in there that uh, may not take into account some of the growth plays that you're actually going to do and have a lot of meat left on the bone. So again, you want to be able to decipher a deal's ability to actually meet or beat the return versus just barely get there. Some specific questions, you always want to talk about track record. Make sure that the, the deals that you're looking at are something they've done before. It's not the first time, right? Show, show me how you've done this before and why this one will be successful. And we like boring and repeat repetitive. And so that's a big part for us. Hey, we've done this 20 times. Here's why we think we could do it again. That kind of thing. Um, those are some, some points I think you'd want to look for. Then references, ask, call, get as many as you can, find some organically, you know, go on LinkedIn, find the people, see who they're connected to that you know, and then reach out to them without anybody knowing and see if there is a positive or a potential feedback they can give you one way or another. So really uh, sleuthing, but it sounds like in your mind, a lot of the the questions are pretty similar if if a passive investor is is speaking with someone who raises money, places capital in versus speaking directly with the per, the the operator, if you will. Yeah, you, you, it's kind of a team effort, right? And so mm -hmm. uh, one thing we do is we vet people. Uh, it takes a long time. 
a lot of times we vet it with our own money where we'll write a check and invest before we bring an operating partner offering to our investor group. And so find out how much vetting has been done. You know, I, again, I'm an analyst by trade. And so I ask a ton of questions. And so I think that's a benefit for our investor group where we, we feel that we've probably checked off a lot of boxes before we'll bring an opportunity to the table. And, you know, if investors are looking at other areas and they're talking direct to a sponsor, they're going to want to do the same thing. And, and sometimes, you know, vetting people, Taylor, takes a lot more time and effort and it's harder than vetting a deal. Um, but the people are more important than the deal. And so you have <laughs> to kind of make sure that you're you're paying enough attention to what really matters, right? Because you can you can look at overly zealous projections all day long, pie in the sky type numbers and get excited about an opportunity. But if you don't have the right people, it, it doesn't matter what those projections are. I love that. We're going to stick a pin in it and take a quick break for our sponsor. Have you ever wanted to invest in the private lending and debt side of real estate? You might find that going out and finding borrowers on your own is tough. When you find a borrower, you have the task of evaluating their plan all on your own. And the traditional way of lending private money highly concentrates your risk because you'll probably be funding the whole rehab loan on your own. That meant writing loan checks well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, placing a lot of risk in individual borrowers and properties. Not to mention, there's a lot for you to know in terms of how to structure these loans so that you can help protect yourself and work with the borrower in your interests. Now, there's a new way to invest in the debt side of real estate that turns the private money lending space on its head. You can invest in a variety of debt instruments with this new platform with as little as $10 in each opportunity. You can diversify your investment across a wide variety of borrowers, geographies, and asset types. This new platform is called ground floor. They make it easy to invest in either your name or using your self-directed IRA. And if you don't already have a self-directed IRA, don't worry. They make it easy to get started and get one opened. Go to www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor to get started or click the link in the show notes. See the ground floor site for full terms and details of what they offer. Once again, that's www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor, or click the link in the show notes. Back to the show. All right, Mark, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Let's do it. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Yeah. Um, I, I, the most recent one comes to mind and I'll share that with you just because it's relevant. Um, I'll stay, say this in 2020 on the onset of the pandemic, we stopped investing entirely for a period of almost two quarters. We watched, we waited, we analyzed, we talked to tons of folks in the industry. We looked at our own portfolio performance. We're trying to find out, is there going to be distress, right? Are tenants going to stay and pay or are they moving out? And we have a high vacancy rate. And by the end of the summer of 2020, we found that there was actually a high occupancy rate staying consistent. Collections were still very strong, typically over 90% at our assets. And we found that there's a lot of demand for what we'd call higher quality interior renovated apartments specifically versus uh, maybe some of the older stuff that was dated. People were, were spending more time at home and they wanted their home to be nice, right? And so we decided in uh, about Q3 2020 to make our first investment uh, into an apartment community in Phoenix. 
Um, it was with a very reputable operator there that um, has a, a stellar track record and, and checked all of our boxes. And so, uh, and they were referred to us from another investor that had been doing quite well with them too. So we invested with them. The business plan was to renovate, I think it was around 280 units, Taylor, give or take, over the period of three years, and then to sell the asset. They renovated 25% of the property. Um, after first year, we sold it in October of 21, and our investors earned over you know 92% average annual return. And so it was a real home run. It's relevant to kind of what's been going on today. In essence, that that performance came from two things. One, our operating partners executed tremendously well on the business plan. They grew the net operating income from $2 million to start to $2.8 million by the end of one year. And we had projected the exit cap rate to be about 150 basis points higher than the going in cap wow. rate. And what really happened was the cap rate compressed as well. And so you got the benefit of you know, stellar execution and market tailwinds, you know, that you kind of have to have both hit those kinds of numbers. But that's essentially a, a recent one that I'm happy to share with you. <laughs> nice. I appreciate that. You, know, you talked about the success of the business plan and also the, the factor that's outside of all of our control being the, the cost of money changed and the market cap rate change. And those are both factors, but it's important that we acknowledge market tailwinds and not get a big head, I suppose, about you know how we were helped out by the market in those situations. Yeah, you got to have both to get those numbers, right? And so the market tailwinds right now are very strong. We're definitely taking advantage and leaning into them, but we also have to have the operational ex- execution as well. Totally. I like it. So we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Yeah, I'd say maybe it was just a personal investment I made into a an oil mining field in Texas, just outside of my box, my comfort zone. Didn't spend enough time analyzing it myself to truly understand it. It was a little bit more of a speculative play when cost of price per barrel of oil was quite low at the lowest. We just assumed, hey, it's only going to get better from here. But there was a lot of operational hurdles in that investment. Um, it's still active, but it's just not performing. And uh, and so we'll see where it goes. I think you know, right now, maybe we'll sell it this year and break even or have a slight positive return, but just speculative and, and outside of my comfort zone. But it was just a small personal investment. I think that I learned from it is you know, do more research and stick to what you know and do well. Yeah, I don't hear the best things about those oil field investments. I haven't done one myself. Yeah, I, I won't comment. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite question here at the end of the show is, what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Yeah, I would say, you know, I've stressed throughout our talk, Taylor, about people and aligning yourselves with the right people. But we hear that a lot. It's a bit cliche, although it is critical. I think another point that I would mention is, you want to look at the best case scenario and the worst case scenario for an investment and really look at that downside possibility and get comfortable with it because there, there's a reality here is that not all deals are going to perform. The market is going to change. Things aren't going to play out exactly as the pro forma shows. And so don't just look at the projected returns, really focus on sensitivity and downside you know, what happens if occupancy goes down by 20% or if rents are flat or if rents go down? Nobody projects rents going down, Taylor, right? And so look at that and see what the end result might be for your rate of return and uh, get comfortable with the downside as well as the upside. 
perfect answer from a financial analyst in particular. And I, I love that. And, and a lot of great points there. Mark, thank you for joining us today. Such uh, great lessons from this conversation. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you or learn more or, or you know, whatever, get in touch, where can they track you down? Sure. Our company name is SMK Capital Management. Um, we have a website, of course, smkcap.com. And you can also email me at uh, info at smkcap.com. Awesome. Well, thanks once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I appreciate that so much, you guys. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. I say this every show and I mean it every time. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.